it radiated the fact that I see you, you're not a threat, I'm just doing my thing. But I was a little bit spellbound. I think spellbound isn't the word. That's the first question. Did you take a photo? And so it immediately puts you on the defensive because when you say no, you say well, it didn't happen. You're on the back foot of what's your little story. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hello, and welcome to Big Cat Conversations. This is episode 78, coming to you in July 2022. For this edition, we will be hearing about three different big cat encounters in different parts of North Wiltshire, and these have occurred in the past couple of years. As usual, we'll have other talking points because our guest, Chris, is a metal detectorist, and it's that activity that has led in the main to these incidents that we're about to hear about. It's also good to have Wiltshire covered on the podcast again, and it's a large and diverse landscape in mid-southern England. So, Chris, hello, and thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Rick. Good to be here. Thanks, Chris. And the usual opening question for people. Before these incidents, how much was big cat sightings and the possibility of big cats living in the wild in Britain on your radar? Well, I'd heard about it before, big cat sightings. My father, years and years ago, was in the police force, and he said sometimes I used to get people phoning in saying, oh, I've seen a big cat or something like that. And most of the time, at those period of time, the police used to just laugh it off and say, uh, yeah, we're coming to have a look and uh, probably forget about it. But I know it's sort of in the 70s and that people had these animals, different animals and that. Licensing laws changed. So rather than uh, go ahead and get the licenses and be bothered with it, they just sort of opened their doors and said, bye-bye, kitty, or whatever animal it was. So animals can adapt, and uh, there we are. Okay, so you were alert to the possibility. And we're going to hear about the metal detecting activity, which obviously makes you alert and concentrating and quiet in the landscape. And all of that is very relevant to potentially having a big cat sighting. So we're talking about different parts of North Wiltshire in the past couple of years. That's all correct, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Great. And I think we may as well take them in order. So if you can take us through the first sighting and uh, tell us what happened. Well, it's uh, October, November time. So probably half three, four o'clock in the afternoon. It's still light. We keep an eye on land for a landowner. He lets us metal detect on it. We keep an eye because he's had people over there fly tipping in the hedgerows and that. We're on a field with a dog which is a border collie. She was running about, catching her toy. And uh, suddenly she just stopped dead, looked towards the hedgerow and started growling. Suddenly a full-size buck deer with antlers came straight through the hedge, ran straight up the field. And we heard another noise behind it, looked round, and there's a full-size puma standing there. It saw us, disappeared back into the hedge. We jumped in the Land Rover, went around the other side, but uh, it was as if it had disappeared into thin air. Chris, just quickly, you said Puma. Wasn't this a black one, though? Yeah, black. OK, fine. It's the size of a good size Alsatian, probably. Yeah. Sorry, I was interrupted you. We just established a black one, because Puma, of course, is Cougar, Mountain Lion, Sandy Brown one. Yeah. And I know we're going to have one of those coming up later, as your most recent one. So, uh, yeah, this was a, yeah. Black, a black one. So you got to the other side of the hedge, and, and then what happened? Yeah, there's nothing there. It's an area which has got hills all the way around it, not far from the railway line. A big cat could be anywhere around there, sitting up on a hedge or in a tree, just sort of uh, looking down, waiting for deer or some other animal to be there ready for dinner. Do you think the buck that you saw was actually being stalked and then realised that and bolted away? Or do you think it just noticed the cat and decided it was going to move away and then you saw it in transit? Or what do you think might have been happening? I think the deer was being stalked and it uh, caught sight of the cat 
because normally you see deer about. I reckon that deer came through the hedgerow at uh, a good speed. So I was definitely running away from the cat. Can you give us a good description of the cat? A bit more detail, what were the standout features that you noticed? Obviously black, like you said. Flat fur. Size-wise, about the size probably of a good-height Labrador. But the thing that struck us was the length of its tail. You know, very surprising. <laughs> what sort of attitude did the cat have? Could you imagine it had grown up and lived in the wild and knew its place? Oh, yeah. It looked very alert, very healthy. We were only about 25 yards from it, so I could see it very clearly. When it came through the hedge, its eyes were looking towards a deer, but we must have made a noise or something, and it turned its head, saw us. It didn't linger. It just, back in the hedge, it moved at quite some speed as well. How many of you watching it? There was myself and my partner. She was there as well. The dog can't speak. <laughs> yeah, what did the dog do? Well, she just stood there. She didn't growl or anything. As soon as the cat had gone, she ran towards us. Yeah, not noticeably scared or freaked out about it? No. Being a border collie, she's quite um, clever. She's not scared very much. Do you think she realised to keep still and quiet and observe and not overreact, perhaps? Yeah, I think you're right there. So that incident, did you then discuss it with a landowner and hear about anything else that the landowner and local people were aware about? Or was it completely news to the people that you informed? It was, well, yeah, news definitely to the landowner and... uh We've spoken to sort of other people that live in that area at that time. They were quite surprised. Obviously, I belong to a metal detecting club. And when we told people in the club, or if I told them, they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. How many pints did you add? And uh, when my partner turned around and said, well, I saw it too. We were both there. They say, oh, you must have seen something if both of you saw it. Yeah, it doesn't half help, doesn't it, if there's two witnesses that are corroborating. Yeah. Um, Did that influence you at the time? You know, did you then start being more primed and alert for big cats or did you just carry on about your business as you normally would, just concentrating when you go out in that area and metal detecting? I think it made us a lot more observant, you might say, because we don't know whether that cat would have gone for the dog. And there's other people go over there on these fields, walking their dogs, people riding horses, so we've let the people that we see know that there could be something in the area. Since then, people we've spoken to say they've heard that there's been about another four or five sightings of big cats in that area. What was that, autumn 2020, Chris, that one? Thereabouts, yeah. How long did the whole incident take? I suppose 10 seconds at the most. But long enough, you saw the cat long enough to really clock it. Yeah, it was like everything went into slow motion. Your brain starts working faster. Okay, straight on to the second one then. The second one was different location on what date? That was probably mid-21, yeah. Again, at metal detecting, on some fields, owned by a very polite, pleasant guy we know. I mean, now the chat both detect on the same field, just stopped to have a chat. And we were probably 20 foot from the hedge. And suddenly we just looked at the hedge, looked at each other and looked back at the hedge. And walking along in the hedge, there was this smaller black cat, far too big to be domestic. Its tower went along, up in a loop, and then out again and I suppose it was the size of sink dog wise well a whip it say that sort of height it was just walking along the hedge looking in the hedge looked at us because we carry our mobile phones but they're tucked away so they don't get mucky in that and uh, looked at us and just carried on walking 
And we just looked at each other and looked back at the hedge because we couldn't believe our eyes. <laughs> and what kind of walking was it doing? Was it just walking from A to B or was it in stalking mode or not? Stalking mode. Okay. Yeah. If you see an old domestic cat when it's stalking a, a bird or something, it was just like that. How aware of you was it, do you think? I think it was very aware of us. But because we were standing still, it basically just ignored us. Whether it had been um, in a domestic situation at some time, someone's pet, I shouldn't think so, though. But uh, it must have been around people, seen a lot of people because of where it was, and just sort of thought, it's going to carry on looking for its dinner. Do you think it was a fully grown adult, incidentally? No. I think it was a young one. It did have deer-killing potential, you think? Uh, small deer, yeah. Had it been full-grown, it would have been onto the normal sort of row and fallow deer. Yeah, definitely. How long did you see it for? I'd say easily 20 seconds. We were just dumbfounded. See that sort of thing you don't think about getting your phone out to take photographs. Would you have managed to, say you thought about it, would you have got anything decent, do you think, any decent footage in time? Yeah, definitely. Would probably got uh, a few photographs. Yeah. Do you think it was the same species as the first one, only smaller and younger? Yeah. It looked like a, min- a smaller version, yeah. Okay. The tail... Don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, how would you describe the tail in terms of thickness and form? Um, you might say rigid, very strong. Again, the fur on it, very flat. Head shape, sort of roundish. And its legs, probably getting on for the uh, size of a border collie's legs, medium-sized border collie's legs. We were looking at the side of it. Yeah, again, what what was your emotions at the time? Dumbstruck surprised, that because we didn't expect to see anything like that there because there are quite a lot of people in that area, people with dogs, and that there's houses not that far away. And uh, I think both of us thought, well, it's leaving us alone, not interfering with us in any way. Just let it get on. And again, in terms of you then talking to people about it, did you tell the landowner and did you get any reaction about whether ones had been seen? What kind of reactions did you get when you spread the word a bit? Well, when we spoke to the landowner and told him, he was sort of uh, not really bothered, I might say. I'm not sure whether he believed us or not. Yeah. He's the type of chap that keeps himself to himself pretty much. Presumably you're careful who you tell when you've had these sightings because the metal detecting land is important to you and you don't want to bring undue attention to an area so were you cautious about who you told and yeah how you spread the word yeah yeah we just sort of uh told other people in the metal detecting club that the other chap and i had seen the cat and other people in the club because it was two of us again were surprised more than anything and they just said well we'll have to start keeping our eyes open not just look at the ground all the time Presumably, they were starting to, I mean, two in, what, six to eight months now. You know, the, the rest of the members of the club must have thought, good grief, it could happen to any of us now if now there's been... Yeah. Yeah. Because we're out in the uh, fields a lot, then uh, sometimes you get people sort of walk in, and we have a chat with them, they ask us what we're doing, and uh, we sort of quietly maybe sometimes bring cat sightings into the conversation sometimes they say god really another time they say oh yeah we've heard other people say about that i think a lot of people keep it to themselves because they're afraid of being ridiculed or they don't want to bring attention to an area that they enjoy visiting or they're around the corner from where they they live or whatever okay now this area for the second one was it an area of deer and rabbits that you, you knew about? Do you think it was just sort of scouting around for its food and it was a good place for that anyway? Yeah, quite possibly, because uh, we have seen a lot of rabbits in the area and a lot of deer as well. 
I mean, we've watched foxes go through the fields. There's obviously plenty of wildlife about there. The next thing we're going to talk about, I think, is going to be about two deer carcasses because they weren't related directly to a big cat sighting, were they? But you found them by a pond and felt, hang on, this is very suspicious because this is where an ambush predator would hang out and look for prey. Is that right? You found found two deer carcasses, uh, reported them to Frank and Wildlife Culture University, and I think they may well be big cat related. Is that right? Well, first of all, we found one deer carcass next to a hedge. You could see all the fur had been ripped out. The fur was all next to the hedge, and it actually looked like an animal had been laying in the fur. The carcass, there was just a skull, the spine, a couple of legs, and sort of a few ribs left on the spine as well. And contacted Frank after finding that, and went back there a couple of days later with a bin bag or a couple of bin bags to put it in. We went detecting into another field, me and another chap, and in the middle of the field, there's a group of about six trees, and underneath some of the trees, there's water pooling there, so it's ideal for deer and that to drink. And the other chap says to me, look, come and have a look over here. And I went over to where he was standing, which was underneath a tree with a big branch sticking out, there's two more deer carcasses. Again, the fur had been ripped off, and it was just the skulls, the ribs, the spine, and a couple of legs, I think it was. We picked them up as well and put them in a bag. We spoke to the landowner. He was a bit dubious, I think, about it, because these trees are only about, what, say 100, 150 yards at the most from his house. He's got small dogs, so... Uh, he doesn't want sort of anything eating his dogs, you might say. The location and situation of those finds, of those carcasses, suggested to you that they were predated because they were near where they were drinking. It wasn't a natural mortality and they just sort of dropped dead there. They were there because a predator had snaffled them, you thought. Yeah, it's, it's an ideal ambush place, you might say, because a big cat could have easily been up on this branch on the tree and uh, the deers come along to get a drink, and wham, they become dinner. And if it was night time, the landowner, even if he lives very close, would not hear anything or know about it much? No. What we can say is that because you're within striking distance of Royal Agricultural University, you did take them into Andrew Hemmings. We met him recently, and... When we looked at them, they were still a bit sort of fresh and grisly and bits of sinew around and everything. And Andrew said, if we're going to look for toothpits on these, we best bake them. They either need to spend a few more months decaying and, and getting sort of nice and clean and brittle to look at. But uh, to accelerate that process, they can be baked. And I'm going to, in a couple of weeks' time, call in with Andrew and have a good inspection of them because there's no students in the summer break now. So um, it's up to me and Andrew to have a look for toothpits. But that baking process will clean them up and reveal any telltale tooth marks in them. So it's great that we've got that potential to have a look at them. So we'll we'll keep everybody posted. If there's anything to report, I can always report that in a following edition. I mean, that must be heartening, Chris, that you know, there's a local university that can take samples and look at them and see if there's anything to confirm or follow up what your suspicions are. I think it's brilliant that um, Sirencester University can take them in and uh, do more checks and everything, you might say, to uh, confirm or not confirm what has uh, killed the animals. I think the frustration thing might be that if no toothpits are found, that won't prove that it wasn't a big cat as involvement in them. That's the thing. It'd be, uh, it'll just be helpful if they can. If toothpits that match the uh, the pattern of the carnassial imprints that you can get on bones, that'll be great. So we'll. Um, yeah, it's great that Andrew's trying, and we'll keep people posted. I look forward to hearing. Good stuff. Okay, right. Shall we get on to the third incident? And this one was a puma, wasn't it? This sort of tan-coloured cat. So um, different location, uh, I think, and, and more recently. So again, yeah, take us through it. Yeah, about uh, a month ago now, I was out medley with a club. I was on one field 
one of the other guys was on a, a smaller field. They'd been on there about a quarter of an hour. And I went through the gate into the field, walking along probably about 20 foot or so from the edge. When you're detecting, you always look underneath large trees because people like to sit under large trees and they lose coins, etc. And as I was walking towards the hedge, the big tree there with branches sticking out everywhere, I was about 15 foot from it, glanced up. I spayed over my shoulder, stepped in the other hand. And suddenly I just heard, I'll try and do a, an impression of a big cat. I just heard, and it's very large cat. It was a um, very dark, reddy brown color. Just walked down the tree and walked off in the field. And I just froze. <laughs> I didn't, didn't want to move because I didn't want it uh, sort of coming towards me or anything or going to chase me. Obviously, something like that. You think, where the hell has that come from? <laughs> it was easily the height of a good-sized Alsatian, about one and a quarter times as long. Its tail was long with feathering on it, like on a border collie's tail. And the other animals I've seen sort of in the wild, they see you and they run. But this, it just strolled off like it was having an afternoon stroll. Absolutely unbelievable, but an absolutely beautiful animal. And despite the other sightings, I guess nothing can prepare you for a moment like that. No, not when you're that close. When you first see it, you just pray that it is going to walk away from you, not come towards you. Wow. Do you think... The um, funny, yeah, go on, sorry. The funny thing was, near where we were, there's a small barn. It's got a run outside with ducks and geese in it. Half hour after I'd had this sighting, we heard a big commotion over where these ducks and geese were. And when we went over the farm again a few days later, on the field next door, there was the remains of a goose. I think we disturbed it from uh, waiting for deer because there's a lot of deer in that area. I mean, on one field one day, we saw 11 deer. So you can say they go around herds and we've seen numerous deer hoof prints and the mud on the fields. It must have still felt hungry. So it went and got something else. What did the goose look like? Did you see the, the carcass? It was just bits of wing and uh, sort of feathers, large feathers spread out on the field. So fully devoured. Yeah. And what do you make of that behaviour? Do you think it was... Do you think you disturbed it or do you think it was coming down the tree descending just at the time you were around or it's difficult to tell? Judging by the noise it made, I'd say I disturbed it. I reckon it was up that tree laying pot out on a branch waiting for some deer to come along. I suppose it could have stayed there though and you wouldn't have known about that but it elected obviously to come down and, and move. At that time, I didn't have any um, headphones plugged in my detector. So as I was walking along, it would have been sort of making a noise, bleeping now and again. That probably would have disturbed a bit as well. Yeah. How did it come down the tree? In what direction? Backwards or head first? And can you sort of describe its locomotion? Head first. As it came down, you might say it's, it's stretched out. So... Likewise, I'd say it was probably about 12 foot up the tree, but uh, it didn't run down. It looked more like it walked down with its claws, so when it truly stuck in that tree, yeah, as I say, it just strolled off. Yeah, but definitely gave you a, a warning, a hint that it was boss. Yeah, it let me know it was there. Just on the coloration and the classification, have you looked it up and what do you reckon, what do you conclude it was? It looked very much like um, a mountain lion, that size easily, and uh, that really brown colouring. That's one of their darker, slightly darker forms. They can yeah. be quite a light tan colour, but they do vary in their hues, both in their native countries and in reports here. Full-grown adult, do you reckon? 
definitely a full-grown adult. Wild, fit and confident and all of that, do you think? Extremely. Again, what was the landowner's reaction when you mentioned it? He wasn't too bothered, really, because I said to him it was probably after the deer to eat, and he said, yeah, I could do with getting rid of a few deer because there's a lot of deer seen on it. Well, like I said, we saw a herd of 11 deer on one field. We've seen deer all over the land there. I think sometimes they cause damage to his crops. He's not bothered if a few of them get eaten. Did he know of other reports that were similar, or was it big news for him? I think it was big news for him. But um, when I spoke to a lady that lives on the farm and one of the farm workers, they turned around and said that there'd been four or five sightings of other big cats in the area, mainly black. I think this is the one I'm, I'm going to be allowed to put some cameras up at and, and uh, check out the tree, isn't, isn't it, Chris, uh, very soon? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, really looking forward to that because if it's a tree that gets used again, well, there's every chance we might, might film it if we put a couple of cameras looking at it. Obviously, we'll be very careful how we do that and we'll look at uh, the, the notches of where the, the claws go in and see if we can find any sheaths or anything like that because if only a month ago, there's still possibilities and if you get a sheath snagged in the bark or, or at the bottom of the bark then that cat that's like skin and you will get a dna result so it's um, certainly yeah. something we can look for and again it is um surprising i think we've said this on the podcast a few times now there are very few reports of them in trees and descending trees there are a few and sometimes people report them coming down tail first and sometimes head first so it does vary i mean that must have been you know, remarkable sighting. I mean, very quick and... Well, how long did the whole thing take, do you think? Probably 15 seconds, maybe a little bit longer. Big emotional impact, I presume. Yeah, it's... um, Well, it is a once-in-a-lifetime thing, isn't it, really? But you're on a hat-trick. Yeah. I think I've been pretty lucky in uh, the wildlife that I've seen. I'm so pleased that we can um, put some cameras there. Very good of the landowner to allow that. So how has this influenced you, the fact you've had three? How has it affected you, say, as a citizen, regardless of metal detecting? And how has it affected you when you do your metal detecting? It's definitely influenced me. When I go on a field, if there's large trees around it, I do tend to uh, look up a lot more. I've been out detecting on fields before where I've seen deer hoof marks. And then when you look... There's large paw marks going along behind it or very close to the hoof marks. So I think that's possibly a, a large cat been uh, following the deer. It does make you wonder what else is out there, what's escaped from places. There's a place called Mindy, which isn't that far away from where I live in North Wiltshire. And they're a wallaby on Mindy Common. There's a little colony, is there? There? Yeah. Yeah, a small colony. I mean, if there was um, large cats in that area, there's another form of dinner for them. <laughs> be very interesting if, if anybody found a, a sort of eaten out, hollowed out carcass of a wallaby. That would be a very interesting find. Yeah, OK. Does it affect you when you're actually doing your metal detecting? Or do you just have to be disciplined and think, right, I must concentrate on my metal detecting? Well, on the farm where I saw the uh, last sighting, we've now said that uh, no one goes down that area of the farm by themselves. There's always two people. I'm trying to make people in the club more aware that there are big cats out there. It's not an illusion. Tell them to keep their eyes open, not just on the ground. When you go out metal detecting, one of the things you should do as well is look at the hedgerows. Because if you look at the hedgerow, you can see it's been deliberately planted. Like one of our areas, you've got slows, something else, something else, and slows. And it's a repeated growth, you might say. Then you know at some time in the past, all that's been deliberately planted. So you know that that land has been habited, been used, and there's a possibility of finding more items there. So you're reading the land and the features of the land. So you're targeting particular areas based on whether there might have been human activity under a tree or along a hedgerow or 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, always detect under big trees. But uh, no, if I go towards a big tree, I'll look up into the top of it first before I go <laughs> detecting under it. Yeah, I mean, it is um, people's activities which lead them to the potential big cat sightings. I think if you're quiet in the countryside, you know, and, and you're in the landscape for a good while in your activity, whether it's work or leisure or whatever, you've got more of a chance, obviously. But metal detecting is head down and heavy concentration. So there could well be times when people are close to a big cat metal detecting, but they wouldn't know it because they'd be, they're too preoccupied in their in their main business is that right too right because if you get a signal for an item then you put your detector down next year you get your spade and you start digging a hole you're looking down at the ground all the time you're not looking around so quite easily something could walk past you in a hedgerow and you wouldn't be aware of it at all and you've often got headphones on haven't you because you're listening to signals from your detecting machine yeah a lot of the time you're wearing headphones. Having said that, there have been reports from metal detectorists in, in the past, not many that I'm aware of, but there have been um, a few that are now being logged in different parts of the country. So it is happening. And I should say amongst um, feedback I get from podcast listeners in the past year, I've been contacted by two archaeologists who are yeah, practicing archaeologists and they are interested and they're you know sometimes see things which make them suspicious and I, I think it is they've got their eye in basically looking at the land and reading the land and if they're aware of big cat potential big cat activity it makes them you know look for something else as well so it's all great we're all in it together aren't we we can all use the best skills and experience from our different disciplines nowadays when i'm out in a, a field detecting if there's a farmer or something in another field which isn't part of this farm that I'm detecting on, or someone working there, or someone walking along, if I can, stop them and have a quick chat and say to them, have you seen anything strange or not strictly mentioned big cats? See what they come back with. If they say, oh, yeah, so-and-so saw a big cat, then I can speak to them a bit further and uh, try and get more information then pass it on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. People like Frank and myself and other people who have been investigating big cats in Gloucestershire and neighbouring areas for a while uh, know that this general area and its neighbouring areas have had reports in the past. It's interesting that you're confirming them with your activity, but what surprised me is that your landowners that you spoke to were all unaware of it. It just shows you, doesn't it? You know, some, some of their neighbours, I suspect, do know about it, but maybe not have mentioned it to them or whatever. In terms of you getting permission and getting trust for land, is is that difficult? Because obviously, in terms of putting cameras up for big cat investigations, yeah, you know, we're always trying to get permission and get trusted by landowners. It's probably quite similar to you guys metal detecting. Do you sometimes get difficulty on that, or do, or are landowners naturally curious about what you might find and so happy to have you on their land? Some landowners are. Uh... You might say suspicious that you're going to find something and take it away and not show them. They'll say sort of outright, no, you can't come on my land. Some will say, no, sorry, we don't allow people detection on the land. They might have had trouble in the past. People have been going on there at night without permission. They're called night hawkers. They're basically committing burglary on the farmer's land because they're digging up stuff somewhere uh, scheduled sites as well. These people go on, they give the metal detecting hobby a bad name. Some people think we're all the same, but we're not. I've been, I've been doing metal detecting now for close on 47 years. I know quite a few farmers. I've spoken to other farms as well. And uh, I try and explain to the farmers what we do. If we find something, we let them know. If we find something valuable and it's declared treasure, they by law, get 50% of its value if it's sold. And you get some abandons, go and ask them. They say, yeah, yeah, come on my land. I'll see what you can find. Over the moon, that someone's asked to come on their land and have a search. Nowadays, that's getting less and less. Do you think the majority of landowners 
it is mainly curiosity and, and fascination. They're obviously hoping you'll find something interested and they're not thinking of the potential financial benefits. It is just that it's obviously a sense of discovery of what might be under the soil, as it were, on their land. Yeah, I mean, most of the farms we go on, the farmers like to know what's found there. They don't want anything that you find, but um, sometimes it's nice to be able to give them something that's found. It might not necessarily be of great value monetary-wise, but historically, it's fascinating, you might say. We've had fines on one of my sites, on one field, probably about 30 medieval horseshoes. And on one part of the field, I found five medieval horseshoes stacked one on top of the other with four big metal spikes put down through the middle. No monetary value there. Archaeologically, it's of great interest because it makes you wonder why they were put there. And the fact that they're medieval, it just confirms that that land has been in use for probably over a thousand years, maybe more. We let the landowner know that sort of thing, give them photographs and everything. It just makes them want us to find more, you might say. Not treasure, but more history. So that was a farrier's activity, you presume? Yeah. We think that um, there might have been a farrier working in that area. Not only that, on the side of this field, there's like a, a boat shape dip in the field. I spoke to uh, a chap who's a blacksmith, makes stuff for museums and stuff like that. He said it could be where they're actually smelting iron. We go to um, game fairs and steam rallies and stuff like that. And at one steam fair, we're talking to a guy who's a blacksmith. And he said, think back to those times. The blacksmith wouldn't have, or the farrier wouldn't have had an anvil to carry about. All he would carry about with him, probably, is a pair of pig's bladder bellows. And the site that he went to had to have clay and water so he could make a furnace. And his anvil, there would be a tree stump being cut at tabletop height, you might say. That would be his anvil. He might have a hammer or he might get a sturdy branch from the tree, sort of cut and shape it a bit to use as a hammer for banging the metal. And he said, where they've been working the metal on the tree stump, they'd burn the wood and make it into carbon. And what they'd do, if they were working a blade, they'd work the blade on that carbon. So the carbon went into the iron and it gives you a steel edge on the blade. So it was a much more mobile activity and smelting was part of the process in situ in those days. Yeah, because they wouldn't want to carry everything about with them. They might be going about on a horse. They might have a cart. They wouldn't want to carry too much with them. When I met you at Royal Oak University recently with um, Andrew Hemmings, you reached into your pocket and you had this wonderful flint axe head. Can you tell us about that? I lived up in Norfolk for about seven years. When I was up there, I got permission to go metal detection on a farm. It's about 12 miles outside Norwich, north of Norwich. And I uh, went on this one field, started finding a few bits of man-struck flint, and I thought, oh, this is getting a bit much. So I went back to the car, put my detector in the boot, got some carrier bags, and just walked the field. Two carrier bag fours of man-struck flint later, I found blades, uh, flint blades, arrowheads, spearheads, a couple of axe heads, other tools, flint cores, the flakes had been struck off of and a bit of worked antler as well. I took it all to the Castle Museum in Norwich and uh, left it with them for a month or so. Next time I went back there, they said, oh, well done. You discovered a Neolithic industrial site. And when they explained it to him what it was, because the flint was so good there, they were making all the flint tools and everything there. People, tribes that uh, didn't have very much flint, trade with them for the flint implements. The farmer at the time didn't want the flint, so I've still got it. Now that farmer is um, a good friend of ours. We go and see him now and again. 
whenever we go there, we're still finding man-struck flint on the fields around it. There was no context for that. That was a real discovery. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes you might find a few bits of man-struck flint on a ploughed field, but never anything like that before or since. Now, that axe head, can you tell us about how you actually found that particular one? Because it is um, a spooky turn of events, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, after I'd been walking the field, I didn't want to spend too long on there because it was starting to get dull. I went sort of back to the car, put the bags in, drove home to where I was living at the time. And that night, I just had a dream that on a certain part of this field, there was this beautiful flint axe head that I hadn't found as yet. And the dream stuck in my mind. And the following day after work, I went back to the field, walked on that field, walked to the spot that I'd seen in my dream, bent down and picked up the axe head that I'd seen in my dream. And I think that was spooky. Do you think it was your experience, though, kicking in, your psyche telling you in the sleep? Or would you just call it a straightforward premonition? It's hard to say that. <laughs> but it's such a, a vivid dream, you might say, because it stuck in my mind. I remembered it after I'd woken up. Because a lot of the time when you have dreams, you wake up and totally forgotten about them. But uh, this one, it just stuck in my mind. History is there. It's nice to also carry around a little artefact like that that can illustrate your discoveries because it's a very tangible thing and very lightweight and easy to keep in your pocket and show people. And that is a Neolithic thing, isn't it? Yeah, Neolithic, yeah. Yeah, so how old? 5,000 years plus. Maybe 10,000. I took some photos of it and we'll put some on the website for this edition so listeners can see that. And I'm sure listeners won't mind us going off topic a little bit because it's obviously fascinating and it's, it's why you're our guest because it's this activity that's brought you to Big Cats. Now, I said at that chat at the Royal Agricultural University, would you rather have a, an absolutely spectacular metal detecting find or would you rather have an absolutely perfect Big Cat bit of footage or big cat evidence tell listeners what your answer was it surprised me i think i'd prefer really i mean i've had some spectacular metal detecting finds but to be able to get a you might say a spectacular picture of a big cat so that you can show to people and say look they are there metal detectorists find gold coins hordes of coins and I've had some spectacular finds in the past, but if I could get a spectacular photograph of a big cat or even a short video, then I think that would possibly be one of the things on my bucket list. Excellent. Well, that's so nice to hear. You give it that priority. Do you think it's like a similar sense of discovery? It sounds like a lot of what your work, the metal detectorist activity, is discovering and wonder is that the sort of parallel thing with big cats, that it's a sense of discovery, do you think? I think it is, yeah. I mean, we both, myself and my partner, both interested in history. When you're out in the fields, sometimes you might, like my other half one time, she found a coin, silver denarius of Mark Antony, dated 32 BC, in really good condition. And she just sat down on that field and wondered who the person was that dropped it. They were the last person to handle it. And you think, you're out in a field, you might be miles away from a motorway, can't hear any traffic, and you just sit down and you look around and listen to the wildlife. If you can see something that isn't normal, you might say, then uh, it enriches your life. Very humbling experience, I imagine. Certainly is. Excellent, yeah. And in terms of your awareness of big cats now how has that influenced you about your attitude to them do you think it brings about any issues or, or are you personally happy or concerned or or not sure about implications of big cats living in the wild in britain there's no right answer we ask everybody that there's no it's just your own personal view well, as far as i know no one's been attacked by a big cat as long as it stays that way quite happy to might say live and let live They've got just as much right to be there as what we have. And they were probably there before us, or their ancestors. So uh, why shouldn't they be there? 
It's interesting that you haven't met any of your landowners or heard them report views from their neighbours that those cats have been causing problems for them. No, I haven't heard any farmers say that um, they've had issues with big cats. Do you think you're sometimes being watched by, I don't know, mammals, deer, foxes or owls in the evening or something and and you don't even realise it? Do you think it's that kind of activity that you're so focused and disciplined in what you're doing that you could be watched by uh, wildlife around and you just don't know it, let alone big cats? A lot of the time when I'm detecting, I won't use headphones. So I am listening all the time, as well as to the detector, listening what's going on around. I mean, the other week, out on a field, during the daytime, I heard an owl start calling. If you've got your headphones on, you're not going to hear that. Yeah, or things like the cuckoo. Yeah. I mean, we take our dog for a run over a large park, and when she's running about, you listen to the birds all the time. You hear woodpeckers, skylarks, things like that. And the other year we were over there, heard a strange bird, looked up in the tree, it's a green parakeet. Which are rare down our parts, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I've had one in, yeah. in our garden twice here in Gloucestershire. You'd expect to see them in parts of southeast England and greater London, but Wiltshire and Gloucestershire, it's a very rare event. But of course, they're very apparent when they are very raucous aren't they and screechy yeah and it's quite a novelty an interesting novelty isn't it if you're not used to them managed to get a photograph of it it was sitting up in the tree it's these charismatic species can have other benefits in making us wake up to the wonders of nature can't they i think the big cats are are like that as well Uh, chris i don't know whether you got my message Uh, have you got a word of the week to offer yes cat tactic Cat detecting. <laughs> okay, yeah, you made one up for us. It's a cross between looking out for big cats and metal detecting, so you do both at the same time. Do you think it's caught on amongst some of your members? Are some of your members frustrated that they haven't seen anything and you've had three? Some of them have said, well, where comes? we've never seen these big cats. And I just say to them, keep your eyes open and your ears open more. Look around your surroundings. Well, it's nice if you can combine the two disciplines and get a double benefit, as it were. You'll see more wildlife by going out in the countryside than if you're stuck at home. So get out and get some fresh air. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's an ongoing message on these podcasts. Yeah, well, I'll be out setting some cameras up with you soon, Chris, I hope. See what we can get. We're in it for the long haul. If they can stay there as long as possible, that's great. Any wildlife that's of interest to the landowner to see, we'll show them that. Yeah. Chris, I'm sure listeners have enjoyed that and enjoyed your insights from the world of metal detecting and hopefully we'll meet other metal detectorists in the series of podcasts. But for now, Chris, thank you very much for coming on Big Cat Conversations. Been great. Hope to uh, be able to give you more information in the future, Rick. Thanks ever so much, Chris. Take care. Well, we can now update you on some of those points because since that recording with Chris, he and I have visited the location where the puma-like cat came down the tree. He set up his portable ladder on the tree and I had a good scan of it. The tree was covered in a curtain of brambles, so inspecting it involved plenty of pruning back of thorns, but I couldn't find any claw notch marks or snagged hairs amongst all the uneven willow bark. There was a large bowl shape a third of the way up the main trunk before smaller trunks sprouted out. That would have been a perfect layup spot for a cat and there were some large horizontal and angled branches which a cat could walk along and rest on. We've set up two trail cameras there by the tree and we've put another one nearby by a water trough because big cats are sometimes reported drinking from water troughs set up for cattle. We'll be checking those cameras at intervals and we'll keep you posted with any developments. So you can get an impression of that area on our website under episode 78 on the refs and links page. You can see a photo of Chris with his metal detecting kit by that tree. 
And in terms of the baked bones we mentioned, well, since that recording with Chris in early June, I have visited Andrew Hemmings at Royal Agricultural University after the deer bones had been baked. So Andrew was able to do an initial check of the deer bones that Chris provided. Andrew found several toothpits on different parts of both sets of bones, and these are far more likely to result from a cat than a dog, but these can only be verified as cat-related if they have the triangle imprint of canassial teeth cusps that match a large cat's dimensions. On the smaller deer bones, possibly from a yearling, there may be one of these triangles, but that needs more thorough checking, and Andrew will probably do that with a new student in the coming autumn term. Again, on the Big Cat Conversations website, we have some photos of the skeletal remains of the two deer, and you can see Andrew doing his initial check for toothpits, and some of the toothpits themselves are marked with blue arrows in the photos. Overall, they are very good samples for students to study in the lab because they show more of the skeleton than most other samples, so more overall context for seeing different tooth marks across the carcass bones. So great to see this citizen science in action, helping our understanding of the topic. OK, next episode we will be hearing about black panthers reported in South and southwest Wales, and we may have three different guests for you on that one. And finally, as some of you will know, it's good to hear that Matt Everett's long-awaited documentary, Britain's Big Cat Mystery, has a TV slot coming up fairly soon now. We'll keep you updated on that. However, meantime, for a small fee, you can watch a similar programme with some added material that's available now. And that one's called Panther Britannia. And we put a link for that one on the website under episode 78 and I'm sure people will feel those programmes do the topic justice and show the many different angles to it. Righto, we are signing off now, so thanks again to our guest Chris, and as ever, thank you everyone for listening. Look forward to being back soon. Take care and bye for now.